Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for June 19th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest TV and film news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Uh, not much, but we got we, we got a lot of news on the docket for today because it seems like, you know, when we're doing these... Uh, uh, water cooler Mondays. We have a backload from Monday, so let's get to it. Uh, let's get to the story that first broke on Friday and evolved over the weekend, and that is about uh, television personality Chris Hardwick. Uh, his ex-girlfriend came out and posted a long essay online, which has resulted in him potentially losing his gigs on AMC, and uh, he won't be at Comic-Con this year. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so last week, uh, Chris Hardwick's ex-girlfriend, Chloe Dykstra, posted a long essay on Medium.com uh, alleging a, um, about a very uh, emotionally and sexually abusive relationship that they were in for three years. Um, there was quite some uh, damning details to be told about how Chris Hardwick treated her. Um, it goes well beyond simply being something like a bad relationship. This is you know, really dark stuff. Um, and so yeah, it goes it, into some psychological abuse, some sexual yeah. abuse, and also some blacklisting. He had her blacklisted from jobs after their relationship, uh, dissolved. Yeah, exactly. So very shortly after the, the story went viral online, uh, and word started getting around, Nerdist had already, uh, removed all references to Chris Hardwick from their site. Uh, he was the CEO of Nerdist. He founded the website, but he hasn't really been involved in, operations at Nerdist for a couple years and his contract with Legendary Digital Networks, which owns Nerdist now, expired back in December of 2017. So he's not involved there anymore and uh, hopefully Nerdist should be able to move forward uh, despite the, you know, this taint that comes from you know his allegations. But on top of that, uh, AMC also took actions on this. Uh, Chris Hardwick has a, a talk show on AMC called Talking with Chris Hardwick where he just sits down and chats with various celebrities, kind of like his own uh, you know, late night network talk show. Um, the second season was supposed to begin this past weekend, but it was pulled from the schedule with 
uh, no plans to reschedule it for the time being. Their uh, AMC is taking the time to assess the situation and figure out, um, you know, more more about it. Uh, there's no decision on whether what what's going to happen with Talking Dead, which is the Walking Dead after show that Chris Hardwick also hosts and produce on the network. Um, but if this follows suit, I can't imagine he'll be back to host, and they might have to find uh, somebody to replace him on that show. And then on top of that, uh, NBC was also in the midst of cons- uh, figuring out what to do about the, their game show, The Wall, which Hardwick hosts and produces. It, it's already been renewed for a second season, but production isn't supposed to begin until September, so they have to figure out how they're going to approach that. Both AMC and NBC released statements saying they were going to, quote-unquote, assess the situation and figure out how to uh, move on from there. Yeah, and uh, Comic-Con, which is heating up uh, next month, he's yeah, usually a, a moderator at most of the panels. Uh, it appears like he's going to be sitting at home for this Comic-Con. Yeah, yeah. in the statement from AMC about their shows, they also said that Chris Hardwick had stepped down from moderating panels for both AMC and BBC America, the latter being the uh, Doctor Who panel, most likely, since Hardwick was uh, always a huge Doctor Who fan and uh, frequently moderated the panels at the Comic-Con. Yeah, and it should be mentioned that Hardwick did release a statement a day later, basically denying any sexual abuse. It was a weird statement. It felt like it was written by a lawyer, um, where Chloe's statement, which uh, all all those uh, um, claims I mentioned earlier were from Chloe's statement. We don't know those are true. Chloe's statement felt raw and honest, and uh, his statement felt very, uh, uh, this was written by a lawyer, but also with weird asides of like, you know, saying that she was unfaithful and some line about a, being a future father. I don't know. It just seemed weird. Yeah. Uh, ben, any thoughts on this? No, not really. I mean, you guys, you probably all know how I feel about this. This is uh, it's good. I'm, I'm glad to see that these companies are actually taking action here. Uh, just believe women, basically. <laughs> that, that's all I have to say. And especially in this case where I, I feel like Chloe has nothing to gain from releasing this information other than it, it, vengeance or revenge or something like that. Like it really doesn't seem like uh, putting the story out there has anything gained other than to, you know, let other women out there know that, you know, th- th- these situations happen to, you know, keep an eye out. I know a lot of people on Twitter um, because I've been kind of vocal about this on Twitter have been like, Dude, you're, you know, pitchforks, you know, you haven't heard his side of the story. Well, first of all, he hasn't told us his side of the story. He, he instead, like, released this very lawyer-ridden, like, statement. But on top of that, like, you know, we live in Hollywood, and people talk in Hollywood, and, you know, when something like this happens, uh, you know, you hear stories about a person from various different, you know, avenues. You, you hear, like, the, the guy that used to run Nerdist, Brian Walton, uh, before, you know, he got taken over by the the current staff, uh, you know, has said, uh, you know, nothing about sexual abuse or anything, but has said some not-so-nice things about Chris Hardwick on uh, his social media. Uh, so, it, I don't know. Uh, Brad, any any additional thoughts on this? Yeah, it's just, you know, this is one of those things, too, where we're always going to take the stand to believe victims when allegations arise like this. Uh, you know, we just we have to take the position to denounce, you know, harassment and discrimination and abuse of any kind. And, you know, this is just the kind of story where you have to believe the victims. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to be able to make any progress in, you know, making a dent and getting rid of people who behave like this. 
And I mean, this breakup was a long time ago. I don't know. To me, it's like you have to believe the victims and you also have to question yourself while you're trying to believe the victims. You got to be. Is there any motives for this victim to to, you know, make up the story? And I, I really do not see any motives whatsoever. You know, this far along since the relationship, it really feels like it is coming from a raw and honest place. But uh, yeah, anyways, I think we should move on. Um, we've been talking a lot about this Disney Fox acquisition. Uh, last week, I believe uh, Comcast put in their all cash bid outbidding Disney for 20th Century Fox. And now we hear that uh, Disney might not be out of this fight. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so CNBC came out with a uh, sort of a follow-up report saying that uh, Fox's board is, is scheduled to meet tomorrow to discuss Comcast's bid. And like you mentioned, we talked about that last week. Um, and if Fox decides that they prefer Comcast's offer to Disney's offer, Disney actually, I think, contractually has five days to be able to match Comcast offer of $65 billion. So Disney, quote, is expected to add cash to its bid in addition to the sort of stock-based offer that it, it currently has in place. So yeah, that's just the latest update. And, you know, it's basically going to be a back and forth between these two, these two companies to see which one emerges victorious in this situation. So we'll, we'll be keeping a close eye on this, but that's just the latest uh, little update that we had there. So figured it was worth mentioning. For sure. Let's also talk about Stranger Things. We talked about last week that they announced they were doing a Stranger Things uh, prequel novel that would tell the story of Eleven's mother. Uh, now we know that the the world of, of Stranger Things is also going to be explored in the comics. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so Netflix and Dark Horse, the comic publisher, is teaming up to uh, publish a Stranger Things comic book starting this September. And the first, um, I guess the deal covers a multi-year publishing line that is going to explore the mysterious world of Hawkins, Indiana, where the show is set. And the first um, series is going to be a four-issue series devoted to what happened to Will Byers when he disappeared into the Upside Down. So the first episode of the series, the TV series, uh, shows Will disappearing and going into this alternate dimension. And we don't really see him very much for the whole first season. He plays a much larger role in season two, but he's basically just stuck in the, in, in the upside down for all of season one. And if anyone's wondering what happened to him while he was in there, that's what this comic is going to explain. There's a couple of preview pages that we have uh, published on SlashFilm.com, so you can check that out there. And uh, yeah, it seems like Stranger Things and Netflix are taking a page out of the Star Wars playbook on this and just sort of filling in the gaps um, of this you know, canonical story uh, outside of the visual realm that we know in, uh, in the movies or in this case, a TV show. I, I just wonder, you know... How involved are the Duffer brothers in, like, filming out this canon? Like, are, are these writers just given kind of free reign to uh, do whatever they want within that kind of small bit of time? Or is there stuff that is going to be hinted at here that, you know, uh, is stuff that they're working into the series in season three and four? Like, I don't know. As a fan, I guess, you know... Canon matters to me because I don't want to just read a story that that is basically fan fiction. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so, and you know, I know Star Wars has been has been trying to do that, but it essentially feels like the Star Wars uh, expanded uh, books and novels and comic books have, for the most part, 
been kind of like fan fiction. Like they, yeah, they they established stuff into the canon, but like not much of it, except for you know a character that appeared in in Han Solo and uh, and Rogue One. Uh, not much of it has kind of made its way into the the you know first priority movie uh, story. Uh, Brad, do you have any thoughts on this? No, I kind of feel the same way you do about these kinds of stories. You know, it's you want them to connect to, you know, the material in a way that's canonical because it means it matters because if it's not, then otherwise, you know, why are you even bothering to read it other, other than just like a cool, what if scenario. Um, and so, but, but at the same time, in, in this case, you know, if a story was really that worth telling, why wouldn't you just put it in the series? Why wouldn't you make it part of the show? And so, Sometimes these, you know, canon stories outside of the realm of a given universe feel like they're always kind of subpar and, you know, just spinning their wheels and trying to keep fans busy while they're waiting for what really matters to come next. Um, And that's not to say that there aren't cool stories out there. You know, specifically, I think the Star Wars comic books ever since, uh, you know, Disney took over Lucasfilm and Marvel took over those comics have been fantastic. But, you know, it. I think there's only so much you can do without um, doing something that, you know, would need to have some kind of major impact or lead into something big on the actual, you know, primary storyline, whether it's in a movie or a TV show. No, I agree. I I just feel like I want it to be rewarding in some way. I want to be watching, you know, Stranger Things season three or four and be like, oh, my God, that tied in with that or like. I have a greater sense of this upside down world because of the comic book and I kind of know where this might be heading, but I don't really, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, uh, Ben, do you, do you, do you have any hesitation of, uh, reading any expanded universe stuff that might or might not tie into the canon? Yeah, a little bit. And, and, um, you know, it, it is like, this is uh, Netflix and dark horse teaming up to do this. So while there isn't an announcement here about like a stranger things story group, you know, the equivalent of the people at Lucasfilm who, uh, keep all of those threads together. I do think that Netflix is, has some sort of, um, influence over this and, and these decisions, like you say, hopefully will maybe provide some greater insight into the world of the upside down or something like that. I don't know if we're going to get, because it's uh, the story or the first four issues of this series are, um, set so far in the past. I don't know if we're going to get any like story revelations per se, but I think the idea of being able to flesh out the world a little bit more and maybe see, you know, a, a little Easter egg kind of thing here and there where, like you're saying, you get that sense of being rewarded for reading uh, some of this expanded universe material. Um, I, I think there's definitely opportunities to do that here. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like so many more people will watch the show or watch the movie than will ever pick up this comic book or, frankly, even know that this comic book exists. So they can't do anything too drastic, just... That's oh, just the I'm, I'm, way of the game, you know, but yeah, I'm not saying it needs to be something that like you'll be missing out if you didn't read this comic, but maybe something that enhances the show yeah. in some way. Yeah. Uh, the cynical side of me tells me that uh, because we now know there's a comic made about this, uh, you know, Will's experience in the Upside Down in that first season, that that won't come into play at all in the next, uh, you know, for the rest of the series. 
but that's just the cynical side of me. Um, let's move on to Brad Bird. He's out promoting The Incredibles 2. And, uh, you know, his first live-action film was supposed to be this adaptation of this book called 1906 about the great San Francisco earthquake uh, it was supposed to be an ensemble piece. I was so excited for it back in the day. It never happened. And luckily, uh, some pe- some some writers have gotten an update on what is happening with 1906. Brad, what is going on? Yeah, so this is a project that has been in the works uh, since 2007, long before Brad Bird uh, did Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol or Tomorrowland. This was supposed to be his big foray into live-action movies, uh, venturing away from Pixar. But it just hasn't come together yet. Now it sounds like there's a possibility that it could come together and it could be something even bigger than Brad Bird intended. But it seems like there's a lot of details yet to work out. Uh, So speaking on the Variety podcast playback, Brad Bird was asked about this and he he addressed it uh, for uh, a hot minute. And he thinks that there's a possibility of the project turning into a movie and also maybe like a kind of a companion TV series. Um, so before I before I get to that, I'll I'll talk about exactly, you know what what is sort of appealing to him about this project where, and why it could be this big. He says, "quote It wants to be a longer story. It's a really fascinating moment in history. Prior to the earthquake, San Francisco is this really happening city that's somewhere between the old west and the 20th century. They still had bars where people were getting shanghaied, uh, like getting slipped Mickey fins, and you could wake up on a boat, and if you didn't work the boat, you'd be thrown overboard." So that was still happening, and the people who owned those kinds of bars were in the California legislature. In other words, it was somewhere between the Wild West and the sophisticated city of San Francisco would, would like to see itself as, and was in many ways. So he w- w- likes the idea of that kind of San Francisco being involved in the story, but it, al- it, it also feels like it's too, too big to contain in a movie. Uh, so he, ad- he adds, I love the movie experience, and I would want the earthquake to be on a movie screen, but yet I recognize the story's too big, so I'm kind of trying to get it done as an amalgam, and people are kind of intrigued by it. Warners wants to do the earthquake part of it as a movie, and we just can't get it all under one roof. But I'm still fascinated by the story, to be, con- to be continued. I'm still interested in it, but I want to be done in a way that embraces all the possibilities, and yet somehow stays near or part, part of it, it or something on the big screen. So we'll see what happens. So it sounds like there's still a lot of details to be worked out, but he has been talking to people about trying to get it made. It sounds kind of similar to how uh, initially Ron Howard wanted to uh, have The Dark Tower be a movie and a TV series where audiences went back and forth and saw the story unfold and become bigger as, as it went along. And that's kind of ambitious. It's, it's, it's hard enough to get an audience to watch a TV show or a movie by itself, let alone getting them to be like, hey, come see this movie. Oh, and guess what? There's another part of the story at this TV show. You know, It almost turns into like an entertainment scavenger hunt. Um, and so it's kind of hard to direct audiences in that way to multiple forms of enter- entertainment as easy as it is to walk into a theater or sit on your couch and watch something. See, I'd be in agreement with you, but I feel like judging by his quote, I take it as maybe the, the Warner Brothers now wants to do a TV series with this. And maybe like the first two hours of that TV series will be given a higher budget and premiere in theaters, kind of like what... I mean, this is a bad example because it was a failure, but what IMAX did with Inhumans, um, I don't know. That's what I kind of read into it. Not like this, like, you know, Dark Tower-esque uh, multi-platform uh, connected kind of thing. Uh, but I don't know. It, it's very interesting because I, I 
lived in San Francisco for a number of years. I love the history of that uh, of of that area, and um, and I would love to see this brought to light somehow. You know, either as a movie or a TV series. It, like it, it always read to me when I was researching this project, writing it up in the early days of Slash Film, that uh, it was kind of like this ensemble piece that kind of couldn't really fit into a two hour movie, anyways. So maybe a live action TV series is the way to go. And I remember in those early days, I was so excited because Warner brothers was going to be making this film, but Pixar was going to be doing all the development and like the storyboarding and animatics for the film. So it was going to be like Pixar's first kind of like foray into live, live action production, um, which I'm not sure if they would be involved at this point. Uh, but maybe someday we'll see this. I, I, I kind of get the impression that this is something that's kind of on the back burner, but uh, I hope, Someday, Brad Bird returns to 1906. Uh, let's move on. The first reactions for the Sicario sequel have hit the web. HT did a write-up for the site. Ben, tell us what people think of Sicario 2. I'm not going to say that that title. The title is... <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, Sicario Day of the Soldado is the official title. It's like uh, the worst title for a sequel ever. It's a pretty bad title. And the marketing has been like so bad that I... I really enjoyed the first Sicario and I just sort of had no interest in seeing this movie. But surprisingly, the early buzz coming out of this film is very strong. Uh, Taylor Sheridan, who's the screenwriter who wrote the first Sicario, is back to write the script again. And apparently the uh, from the early reactions, his script is really fantastic. Um, Ann Thompson says Taylor Sheridan's sequel Sicario Day of the Soldado deepens the characters played by Josh Brolin and Benicio del Toro in unexpected ways. And the director uh, Stefano Salimo delivers Mike Ryan from uh, Uproxx said Sicario Day of the Soldado is surprisingly pretty awesome tense gritty and ends on a note where i want more benicio del toro is amazing and that's a, a common refrain from all these reactions everybody said that both brolin and benicio del toro are really really good in the film uh gregory elwood who i think writes for the playlist sometimes says uh i saw sicario 2 the other night it's fantastic it doesn't have the visual splendor of denis villeneuve's first film but taylor sheridan's screenplay is superb the film has unexpected heartbreaking moments and strong performances from del toro and brolin so uh yeah again it seems like this is a, a surprising sequel that is actually pretty great and you know a movie being good these days uh means that it has better chance at the box office uh which leads us into our next story and that is that warner brothers uh uh, one of the heads of Warner Brothers has said that their their plan for the future of the DC uh, cinematic universe, their business plan, is to make good films. Brad, th- this reads like an Onion headline. Uh, wh- what is going on here? Yeah, well, it sounds like they got some novel ideas over there at uh, DC Entertainment because this is just a huge shift from what they've been doing as of late. Uh, Toby, Emmer- Toby Emmerich, who is the Warner Brothers film chairman, uh, was recently talking about the, um, the, the status of the DC Extended Universe and what's to come with the arrival of, of Aquaman. Uh, and apparently they've figured out what they need to do in order to move forward in a more successful fashion. Uh, and he thinks that Aquaman is kind of the first step towards uh, doing that. <clears throat> Here's exactly what Emmerich said. Uh, he said, quote, well, for, first of all, he said, somebody once said that the best business strategy in motion pictures is quality. And I think in a world of Rotten Tomatoes and social media, what's been proven, the better movie, particularly in the superhero genre, the better it performs. 
you can't hide the bacon anymore. So, <laughs> I love the idea that somebody's going around referring to like Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice as the bacon. Yeah, it's and it's like you say, it's like man, we used to go, we used to be able to make shitty superhero movies and make people think they were good, but you just can't do that anymore. You gotta, <laughs> you, you gotta make good movies now. It's just a given. Well, th- uh, this is also the guy that like you know rose to prominence uh, uh he ran new line which produced a lot of horrible horror movies you know they were just cranking him out at one point yeah so he he continues with more obvious things that everyone already knows by saying i would say no matter what the better the movie is the more advantage it is when you're talking about art i believe that it's tough to judge art at the moment when it's presented to the world but i would say there are movies that are right for their time that an audience is ready for that's in sync with the zeitgeist and I think you need a movie whose quality is recognized at the moment of release so it's in touch with the culture of the moment. We're at a unique moment around the planet, and certain types of movies are working better than others at this moment of time. And I do think Aquaman will sync up with the global culture zeitgeist of what's happening right now. So is so, he saying that Zack Snyder films and dark superhero films are just not, you know, they're good, like those were good films, but they just weren't part of the zeitgeist of the moment? I mean, maybe, you know, I, maybe he's he, I mean, that's his way of saying, you know, right now what's hip and cool is the way Marvel is approaching superhero movies and Zack Snyder's approach was different than that. And maybe that's why audiences didn't latch on to them. You know, it, it's hard to say since he's being so vague while saying something that's so obvious, you know, <laughs> uh, um, but it's just, yeah, you know, it's 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 hard to see exactly, you know, what this means as far as the future direction of the MCU uh, hopefully Aquaman has what it or takes. The, the DCU. Yeah, yeah, sorry, the DCU. Um, hopefully Aquaman has what it takes to, you know, get help, help it get back on track. And then, you know, Wonder Woman 1984 will come along and keep the train moving. But it, we'll, we'll see. There's a lot of a lot of things that have yet to be determined. And there, Chris wrote this up for the site, but the original interview, it, it's funny because Emmerich goes on to say that he often runs ideas of what is going on by his, uh, to his, uh, I think daughters, he said, and they, they usually have a pretty good idea of what's going to work and what doesn't. And I'm just like, how, how, how are these companies being run? I don't know. It just is insane to me. That reminds me of monster trucks. I think that that Paramount <laughs> movie was like the idea for that movie came from like the, I don't know, the president of productions, you know, like five-year-old kid or some crazy story like that. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're talking about box office and how films do at the box office. We should talk about Incredibles two, which came out this theater in smashed box office records uh destroying probably my summer movie wager uh picks brad tell us about it yes incredibles 2 which was already going into the weekend with some pretty big projections uh but at the end of the day it actually ended up making even more than what was planned the higher end of the box office projections from analysts had it making around 165 million at the most but uh when all was tallied after the weekend, Incredibles 2 made $183.2 million, and that's just at the domestic box office. That's enough to smash the opening record for any animated movie in the history of animation. It beat Finding Dory, which was the previous record holder, by nearly $50 million. So this is huge uh, for Incredibles 2. Obviously, you know, a 14-year wait has something to do with it, but... It's clear that superhero fatigue isn't really a thing, you know, for all the love that there is for Marvel movies and for how many we're getting each year. Clearly, audiences aren't sick of it yet. 
They're also not sick of Pixar turning out, you know, movies like this. I think that this was kind of a, a unique situation where this was not only a beloved Pixar movie, but it's coming from a studio like Pixar who constantly creates fantastic movies that audiences are excited to see. And it's also, you know, it hits that sweet spot of being something that is exciting for adults, but also fun for kids. And it's just, it's got this this great mix of comedy and adventure and heart uh, and, of course, superheroes. So the fact that it made this much money isn't really surprising at all. The fact that it made maybe a little bit more money than we anticipated uh, is pretty cool. And it just goes to show you, you know, that some movies that you, th- you know, that make excuses for not doing as well at the box office for whatever reason, you know, this kind of movie proves that there really are no excuses when it comes to that kind of thing. Either you have a good movie that people like and are excited to see or you don't. So you're saying the head of Warner Brothers is right. A good movie is the best business plan. Yeah, I, th- I think if we, if, I think people start making good movies, people are going to be excited to see them. <laughs> uh, I, I'm really mad because I put this at number five on my summer movie wager, and it, it is definitely going to be probably in the top uh, two or three. I would assume. Uh, I don't know. I just thought that kids would probably these days not have like you know Incredibles on repeat on their you know DVD players or Netflix I I felt like that wasn't one that stayed with kids but maybe I was probably not looking at the right you know demographic maybe it's the adults you know that are taking their kids uh, that I should have been looking at Ben you did put this up high what what, number two yeah I had it at number two but I mean as everyone is is saying it all depends everything hinges on Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom coming out this weekend so we'll see Uh, I'm, I'm riding high for the moment Peter but it could be a temporary wave Okay, let's move on to Netflix. Uh, Will Ferrell has announced that he is making a Netflix movie. Uh, Ben, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Yeah, so Farrell is going to co-write and star in a new film called Eurovision, which is about an internationally popular music competition show. I had never heard of this show before, but I guess that's because I'm an American and we don't really get uh, access to the show, or, or at least not on the channels that I've ever seen. But uh, Deadline says that the sh- the movie will, quote, uh, resolve, revolve around the wildly popular and long-running international TV music competition, the Eurovision Song Contest. It's a contest that began in Switzerland in 1956 when seven West European nations participated. This year, 43 countries competed for the prize, one in Lisbon by Netta performing the song Toy. And uh, uh, so that's the end of their quote. And uh, the contest over the years has produced some pretty notable winners, including ABBA, who won in 1974, and Celine Dion, who won in 1988. And both of them obviously went on to, you know, become successful musicians uh, in their own rights after that. So we don't know whether Will Ferrell is going to be playing a, a person who's entered the competition or a judge, but he definitely has a history of singing in his film and TV work, uh, you know, going all the way back to Saturday Night Live and, um, you know, the famous songs that <laughs> that he's performed in movies like Step Brothers and Anchorman. So um, this seems like a good fit for him. It's kind of a cool thing for Netflix, too, who's always on the hunt for big A-list actors to you know, increase the the value of their subscription service to users around the world. And the the global aspect is particularly important here because Netflix essentially already has full market penetration in the US. Like everybody who you know, everybody who is interested in Netflix in the United States pretty much already has a Netflix uh, subscription. But the company is really sort of trying to broaden its reach on a more global scale and getting a big Hollywood star who 
to star in a movie that theoretically has international appeal because the show is popular overseas might be a good uh, fit and a good uh, way to sort of check a lot of boxes for Netflix. Brad, you are our resident comedy guy. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, I'm always down to see what Will Ferrell's up to. He Sometimes he's hit or miss uh, with his projects. What seems when he steers a little bit more towards family-friendly, he loses some of his edge and doesn't quite have the freedom to deliver as good a comedy as I like to see from the likes of Step Brothers and, and Anchorman and whatnot. So, you know, we'll see how this one goes. It's definitely an interesting premise. Will Ferrell also loves singing in almost every one of his movies. So any opportunity that gives him a chance to show off those sweet, sweet pipes of his, I'm, I'm all for it. I could, I could definitely see him as a judge or maybe like, you know, the host of the competition, but it mm-hmm. gets a chance to sing. Let, let's move on to the Transformers universe. Uh, Bumblebee is set to hit theaters uh, pretty soon. And if that is a hit... It turns out they might be making an Optimus Prime standalone movie, which is kind of weird because isn't that what Transformers was? But, okay, uh, Brad, what is going on here? Well, as we all know, Bumblebee is coming out this winter. He'll be giving the yellow Autobot his own movie that he stars in with Haley Seinfeld. It's set in the 1980s and continues to make the Transformers timeline and their arrival on Earth even more confusing and perplexing. And if the movie does well enough and if audiences are interested, there's a chance that Optimus Prime could get his own solo movie as well. Apparently, when uh, producer Lorenzo Di Bonaventura and Paramount Pictures were thinking about how to uh, move forward with the Transformers franchise outside of the primary uh, storyline involving the ensemble of Autobots and Decepticons, they were looking at You're either... You're talking about the Wiki Chronicles? <laughs> the the Wiki Chronicles and the Kate the w- 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 Wiki uh, Saga, and the and the Kate Yeager adventures. <laughs> um, so yeah, so they they were trying to figure out how to move away from that. And Optimus Prime and Bumblebee were the two characters they thought would be best to focus on for solo movies. And the main reason that they went with Bumblebee instead of Optimus Prime was because Prime is such a strong established character as far as being a leader. And they figured that with with Bumblebee, he's a little bit more. Uh, De Bonaventura says emotionally volatile. He has a lot of ups and downs, so that makes him a little bit more of an interesting character to follow. Uh, he has a little bit more of a struggle ahead of him when it comes to being on his own and having this kind of adventure. But uh, there's a chance that they could do more movies like this. Uh, Lorenzo teases some more potentially confusing additions to the Transformers franchise by saying, we could do a time travel movie. You could take almost any genre to it. You can go back in the past. You can go to the future. I think we've got an abundance of choices. It's really more about narrowing them down than anything else and deciding which one we think is the strongest one to go with next. Is this the first time that we've had a – that if they make this Optimus Prime standalone movie, that we'll have a sequel to an established franchise starring the the main star from that franchise? I'm, wait, what? I think I think like Pirates of the Caribbean is maybe an example of what you're talking about, right? But they don't have like that's still Pirates of the Caribbean. Like that, like if they made like a Jack Sparrow movie, wouldn't that be? I mean, I guess that 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 film was kind of that. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah, it's it's a little different. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I, can't I don't know. Um, Ben, uh, does an Optimus Prime standalone movie interest you in the in the least? 
you know, on a surface level, no, but I think I've just become so numb to the Transformers franchise as it, it currently exists that I the idea of it in my mind is just like another Michael Bay version. But I, you know, I, I'm kind of like on board with the trailers for Bumblebee so far, and that has a totally different creative team behind it. So if they get, you know, a, a different set of filmmakers or something to come in and, and have a different take on the character, then yeah, maybe depending on the tone and the cast and all that kind of stuff. I might be interested, but it, it's so so far away to be able to say at this point. I just feel like the character of Bumblebee is so much more interesting than Optimus Prime, who's kind of like more of a leader and straight man. Like, I, I, I just don't know what that adventure would be if it didn't involve other Transformers. And if it involves other Transformers, then then it's just another Transformers movie. It's not an Optimus Prime uh, right. standalone film. So, I don't know. Uh, let's move on to another major Star Wars character possibly returning for Star Wars Episode Nine, If uh, you don't want to know about this uh, rumor, you can turn out tune out now. Um, you know, half of the rumors revolving around Star Wars, or I'd say even 80% of the rumors revolving around Star Wars don't end up being true anyways. And there is the possibility that this is going to be something that's going to be shown in most of the marketing as well. So it's probably not a spoiler, but... On the other side of the 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 uh, the coin, uh, Last Jedi had a character from the previous Star Wars uh, saga that we did not know about uh, before going into that film, and it was a surprise. So, if you want to tune out here, Ben, tell us about it. Yes, a Star Wars fan site called Fanta Tracks, who has published some legitimate scoops in the past. Uh, they are reporting a quote exclusive rumor. I love that phrase. That <laughs> uh, that Billy D. Williams is going to return to play Lando Calrissian in Star Wars Episode Nine. So we don't know anything about how that character would actually be, you know, worked into the story. All of that is still under wraps at this point. But apparently, they have two independent sources who have verified that information about Lando's return. So that's what they're going with right now. And this is one of those stories that sounds entirely plausible but at the same time it would not surprise me in the least if somebody just sort of made it up because it sounds just like something that would or could happen uh we know that carrie fisher obviously can't come back to to reprise her role harrison ford's han solo was killed off in the force awakens and luke skywalker may or may not be back as like a force ghost or something in episode nine so that means that billy d williams would be one of the few cast members of the original trilogy that could conceivably come back and sort of bridge that gap, you know, between like the legacy cast and the newer cast of people like Daisy Ridley's Ray. So I don't know, this, this sounds plausible. Um, Billy D. Williams is 81 years old right now. So he probably won't have too many more opportunities to, to appear as this character in live action again. So if it happens, it's probably going to have to happen in this movie. And, and that's, that might be it. Um, I think it, it, you know, there's an opportunity for maybe Ray to pass the millennium Falcon back to that character and maybe reunite Lando with what remains of L3 after they spent so many years apart. That would be kind of a fitting ending for, and like a nice, uh, closed circle for that character. Um, but yeah, what do you guys, I mean, I, I'm probably the, you guys are way bigger Star Wars fans than I am, so I'm sure you have some thoughts about this. What, uh, Brad and Peter, what do you guys think about this? I mean, I love Lando. I'm not sure what Billy D will look like as Lando in, in a movie these days, and I'm not sure if that's going to make me uh, sad 
or happy uh, if I actually see it. But if I thought, you know, Kathleen Kennedy and the whole uh, Star Wars gang were, were planning everything out, I would think that, you know, Solo, a Star Wars story, did tease us enough Lando to set up an appearance in in this episode nine, but I don't think that they're planning things that well out. And it seems like our JJ Abrams has his uh, own uh, mystery box that he's playing in and doing whatever he wants. But Brad, uh, do, do you want to see Lando return in the star Wars saga? I honestly don't really know. I, I think the prospect of Lando coming back is, is cool, but Billy D Williams definitely is older and he, he doesn't quite look as, capable you know or cool as uh harrison ford did in his in his later years you know even though harrison ford has aged quite a bit since his younger years as han solo he still you know had this kind of you know rugged attitude and sort of capable capability to himself that showed that he could carry himself but billy d williams feels like he is a little bit more frail i guess you could say and so if he is back I can't imagine it, it'll, it would be in a role, you know, that puts him in action or anything like that. You know, maybe he has more of a, you know, a, like a supervising role, like if he's still involved with the rebel cause at all, or maybe they, they end up going back to, to Bespin and Cloud City for something and encounter Lando there. You know, it's it's tough to say. I, I think it would be interesting. So bringing Lando back, I think, brings a little bit of the, the nostalgic touch that, you know, fans still want to see in a Star Wars movie. And, uh, yeah, I think it would probably be interesting to see him back, but I'm not necessarily excited for it. Yeah, it, it seems like the Resistance was left in a very vulnerable place at the end of Last Jedi. And it seems that someone like Lando Calrissian might have a position somewhere in this galaxy that could help them out. That's what I would think if he was going to be in this at all. And I do like Ben's suggestion of him getting back the Millennium Falcon. Uh, although I'm wondering with so few people having seen that film in theaters, if they're ever going to reference any of the events in that movie ever again at this point. But uh, Well, even if they don't directly reference that, people have seen the original trilogy and know that the ship originally belonged to Lando. So, you know, it might even work on that level, too. For sure. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Find all the stories we talked about today on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. Uh, this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published uh, every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com. I thank you, everybody who wrote in and said that they like me talking about magic. Uh, fuck you, haters. But uh, uh, yeah, please leave your name and general geographic location in case you uh, we mentioned the email on the air. Uh, please go review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.